And I think you're Alex, and it's good to be with you guys this morning. I hope that you've had a blessed morning so far as you worship together and, and uh, gave to the Lord the worship and honor He's due. Raise your hearts into communion with Him. If you're a guest here, we're good. It's glad, I'm glad that you're here, and it's good to be with you. And today will be a little bit different than, different than we, what we normally do, exegetical, expository types of teaching. We finished our first and second Corinthian study just a few weeks ago, and so as I told you, we would do a Q&A today. We do that from time to time. And so with just a few exceptions in what you've submitted to me online, I have no idea what I'm going to say this morning, which is um, unusual for me because I normally attempt to be very prepared for a Sunday morning. I even manuscript my messages to you in order not to forget or mess up any part of what the Bible says, what it means by what it says, and how that applies. And because we have a true, complete, authoritative, inerrant word of the living God, it's more, all the more important that we take care with it. I think it's important that we don't haphazardly deliver it. And it's always the highlight of my week to, no matter what else is going on, to be with you and open God's word with you together. It's a blessing to me, and it becomes all the more precious to me the longer the Lord lets me do it. And so today, really, you set the agenda and what it is that you would like to know is what it is that I would like to be able to say. And I can't promise that there is an immediate answer for every question or that I can even give you the answer today. But I will do the best I can with the time that we have. And if I don't answer it as well as you'd like me to, I'll be sure to give you a follow-up with everything that I know about that issue in a later meeting. There were a number of uh, passages and questions sent to me uh, online, and so we can start with those, or if you already know what you want to ask, we can start with that. But usually it's easier if I, if I start with ones that were submitted online, and I'll start with this one. <clears throat> the question is, a person, uh, a person I know teaches that Christians should bind Satan. Is that right? I can't find that anywhere. Please explain what the terms binding and loosing refer to in the Gospels. And so, because there was not a, a passage there, I assume that they are referred to Matthew 16, 18 through 19. And the answer to that, and we'll take it a little bit at a time, an examination of how the Bible connects the terms binding and loosing to the apostles' unique role found uh, in the early church will help you determine if believers can or should bind Satan. And we spend a good deal of time talking about sign gifts and talking about miracles and, and those kinds of things and speaking in tongues and how they were sign gifts that were connected to the founding of the early church. They were given to verify the speaker or the message. They discontinued at the close of that first century. They did not continue throughout the church age with the exception of just a, a minor flare-up in the, about the 1600s and then again in the 18, late 1800s with a quicker movement. But between that time, when the Lord said those things would come to an end, they did come to an end. They are part of the founding of the church. And so we understand those kinds of things. This particularly, um, this question particularly has to do with binding and loosing, very popular today, uh, binding all the evil, binding Satan, binding all those kinds of things. So is that is a biblical term. So Jesus gave the apostles this sole authority to bind and loose things on earth. Matthew 16, 18 through 19, I think is the passage you're referring to. Um, where Jesus says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so you've got those words to Peter. Of course, his name and rock play into each other. We understand the Lord 
is using Peter to establish the church. We understand that the truth that he gives Peter also has established the church, and that truth, of course, is what they act on. Now, later he had said essentially the same thing to the rest of the apostles. We looked at that not that long ago in Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, talking about prayer and, and, and forgiving of sin and those kinds of things. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 tells us the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we understand the church set up, started, built on that foundation, and the Lord has allowed certain things to go on in their lives, which allowed the church to be established. So as we understand, the apostle ministry was foundational. They constituted the authority and formation of ministry within the early church as directed by the Holy Spirit. It's something that we understand to be true. There's an example, of course, in Acts 15, where the apostles and the elders in the church are working through perhaps the most significant issue they dealt with thus far. If you remember, um, there were some who had come down who said they were believers, but also said in order to be saved, you had to be circumcised. It caused a big rift in the church, a bunch of questions, and a bunch of people up in arms. And so they had a big discussion about it, and the apostles' decision against that position became binding on all the churches. In Acts chapter 15, verses 22 through 31, they sent out a letter saying, don't worry about what they taught. They didn't have any authority from us. This is the things you, you, you should do, and these are the things you should avoid. And other than that, uh, the Lord bless you. And so the Holy Spirit orchestrated their decision according to God's will. Verse 28 tells us that very clearly. Then after Jesus commanded his disciples to receive the Holy Spirit, at John 20, verse 22, he told them, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Using the same type of language we see in Matthew 18, which is something that's already occurred in the past, you've declared it. Something's already occurred in the past, you've declared it. So the idea then is he's not giving them power to forgive sins. It can't mean that. Only Jesus can do that. Mark chapter 2, verse 7, Acts 4, 12. There's a number of places. Rather, he gave them the authority then to declare what God had already done in heaven. That was the whole idea of things that had, had, this has been done, you declare it, this has been done, you declare it. They're in connection and in harmony with the Holy Spirit and what's going on and what the Lord wants to be done in heaven uh, is done there through them. So Jesus gave the apostles the authority to bind and loose, to speak and act under God's authority as the foundational representatives for the church. They didn't act arbitrarily. They didn't set themselves up as somehow the only way somebody could be sins were forgiven. They never stated that. It didn't become part of that doctrine. That was the fallacy of the Roman Catholic Church. That didn't occur during the early church. They didn't operate apart from the Holy Spirit and what he had instructed them to do, and they did it as exactly like he told them to do it to establish the church. So they are the representatives. They don't act apart from the Holy Spirit. Now some come along and they see that teaching and they misapply that teaching to include binding Satan. There's no scriptural command to bind Satan. There is no biblical example of the practice of binding Satan anywhere in the scriptures. Satan remains at large as the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2, and he will be chained and bound by an angel, a very powerful angel, not a man, during the millennial reign of Christ, Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 3. The disciples cast out demons but they never bound Satan or them in any way. And again, that whole casting out of demons, again, foundational in the early church, restricted to that era. And that's also to, to counteract some error here locally. That's not a spiritual gift of casting out demons. So that was something that the apostles did. They did that in the formation of the church. They did that, of course, again, to verify the speaker or the message and to, of course, to deliver those who were suffering. So hopefully that answered your question. Second question, and we'll go to ones from the floor if you have any. Can a true Christian backslide? That's a really good question. 
and I think we've all had this experience at one time or another. I think I remember, uh, I remember very clearly, I don't think I remember, I remember very clearly as a high school student and having a youth pastor who taught for quite some time and then moved to California and then it became apparent that he was living in open rebellion to the Word of God and doing whatever he wanted to do and acted as he had never known Christ. I had a really hard time with that as a high school person. I, 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 didn't, know where to, I didn't know where to put that. I, I was wondering, everything he taught me, was that real? I mean, should I hang on to that? I mean, he's not living that way now. Of course, his life has gone on to just continue in that, that same vein. He hasn't ever returned to what we would consider a holy living or walking with the Lord or indicating uh, saving faith. And so it's hard to figure that out. What, what's actually going on? The answer to that is, is this, I think, and, and as I've come to know the Word of God a little bit better and watched uh, what the Scriptures say about these kinds of things, because it's not unusual uh, in Christianity, I think it's certainly true Christians can backslide. And then let's qualify that. If, if you mean by that that they can regress into a period of spiritual stagnation and disobedience. Yes, I think that that's a temporary state that Christians fall into. You may have experienced that, a temporary time of spiritual stagnation, probably connected to disobedience in your life. You didn't feel like the Word was really speaking to you that clearly. You didn't really read it that much, and, but you were under a ton of, of uh, conviction by the Holy Spirit. You didn't want to be there, and, and you know, in the Galatians uh, chapter 6, verse 1, if somebody is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual come and, and, uh, and restore such a one in the spirit of of, uh, of humility, also watching yourselves that you're not also tempted. You remember that? Uh, the idea there is that if that person, if this is you, and somebody comes along and says, hey, I notice you're really struggling, you got some disobedience in your life, you're going to respond to that. You're going to respond correctly. If you're truly born again, that's going to resonate with you because, you know, uh, people who live apart from you, maybe across the street, somebody, nobody woke up over there who's not redeemed, looked over at Berean and said, hey, you know, I, sh- I should go over there this morning. That'll be really cool. We'll, we'll sit in the service. It'll be a lot of fun. Nobody's saying that who's not redeemed, okay? Nobody wants to come in. Nobody wants to be convicted, okay? You probably recognize this uh, on social media. People stop following you because they don't want to be convicted. I have my own family members, close family members. I don't want to, I, I, dis- I defriended you. Why? Because I don't want to feel guilty. Okay, I, I get that, but see, that, that doesn't argue for redemption, does it? Because we want to know where we've erred and we want to be restored. So if you say that, if you're asking if Christians can backslide a temporary time of spiritual stagnation uh, and, and disobedience, sure. And then those who do that will be brought into God's discipline if they stay there long enough. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 through 11, if you remember, um, because the Lord disciplines those who are true sons. And so we understand that just like a father disciplines us, the Lord does disciplines those he loves. If you remember when we studied 1 Corinthians 11, we were talking about uh, the communion. And if you took communion incorrectly, not appropriately, not examining yourself, what did it say? Some are weak, some are sick, and some sleep. And so that was judgment on people. And, And then Paul said this, very important statement, because even in the judgment, we prove that we're not cast out with the rest of the world. We show that we're the Lord. So he brings us into conviction. So it's those who, who are in constant disobedience who don't come under judgment. That would indicate that they were never born again to begin with. So if you're, so if you're thinking backsliding as a perpetual state of willful rebellion, like my illustration of my own life, or an ungodly indifference to, to anything scriptural on the part of one who professes faith in Christ, that situation, beloved, and I think we can unequivocally say this, is a false profession of faith. 
Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will come into that kingdom, right? Because he'll say, they'll say, didn't we do this and do this in your name and all these churchy things and all these Christian-y things? And he'll say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's the word apostasy. That's someone who never came under the, the uh, authority of the word of God. They practiced in their life lawlessness. That's the whole Hebrews thing we looked at not that long ago. If you remember, those who go to church and kind of on the, they're kind of on the orbit of the church. They're living however they want. The rain falls from the scriptures on them, but they don't produce the correct things. They produce thorn and thistle. And what does the Bible say? There's no way to renew them to repentance. They've already heard it all. They've heard the invitations. They've heard what it, you know, they've seen what spiritual life looks like. They've seen faith in people. They've experienced a little bit of worship in, in the worship set. They know that it's real, but they've never come into faith. And what does the Lord say? All that you have expectation for is judgment. And so this is, this is the idea here, false profession, but it looks like a true profession, but what's being brought up underneath the reign of the scriptures, it's just thorns and thistles, disobedience, immorality, those kinds of things. If that's what's in the life, if that's the general practice, then that's not a state of, of backsliding, that's a state of false profession. So just to, to give you a few scriptures to help you understand that whole thing, the word backsliding is used two ways in the scripture. It is found only in the Old Testament references to the nation of Israel in Jeremiah chapter, 13, uh, chapter 3, verse 22, chapter 31, verse 22, uh, chapter 44, 49, verse 4, and a number of other places. Sometimes it speaks of backsliding, as mark this, as the action of unregenerate people who turn stubbornly away from God. That's Jeremiah 8, 5. In that sense, the word cannot be used to describe true Christians. You're stubbornly... Uh, unregenerate, and you don't want to listen to the Lord, and you're not going to. So that can't be talking about, um, about believers. Uh, another time, true believers are said to backslide. Jeremiah 14, 7. I'm going to read that one. That, that's a good one, I think, to um, get the idea of, uh, of the word in its context. Jeremiah 14, 7. And mark, mark what it says here. And you can see the difference here uh, in the attitude Here's what the people say. They say, although our iniquities testify against us, O Lord, act for your name's sake. In other words, they recognize their sin. That's a good start to showing that you're truly redeemed. You recognize your own sin, and you recognize that it, it, uh, it, it is acting against you and that it, it shouts out against you. And then here's what he says. He says, truly our, and it uses the word apostasies, but that is the word backsliding. It's where we get the word backsliding. Um, truly our apostasies have been many we've sinned against you and so that recognition of your own sin a recognition that it's against the lord certainly is um indicative of someone who has been regenerated that that's not language people that are unregenerate typically say um they do, they make they make reasons for you know justify why they do what they do uh, why they disobey the word of god they're, they're not saying it is testifying against me they're just saying well the lord understands and all those kinds of things so different kind of different kind of uh of conversations that are being had. So I think all believers go through times where they don't grow or they're set back in their growth by sin. They seem to be sliding backwards. That's the idea, like, like, uh, uh, like a car on a muddy slope. You know. But in that sense, uh, the word could apply to true believers who desire very much to be restored. And maybe you'll be part of that as you come alongside and encourage them. Maybe the Lord, in his own graciousness, as they desire very much repentance, will see, will see uh, some victory over over that issue and be restored, but not long-term. That's just a false profession, okay? Any questions out there about anything? It doesn't have to be First and Second Corinthians. It can be anything. It can be, you know, personal. It can be um, things we've studied before, things that you've been studying. 
Um, you certainly don't have to ask. There are a number of other questions got asked online, and we'd, I'd be glad to go there. But if you have one, I'd be glad to do my best to address it. All right, the, um, there's another question that came in, and, and this was probably prompted by some of the comments I made most recently, and it's a super good question. The question is, do we have a responsibility to take care of the environment? And um, that's a great question. And, and the answer is, in general, I do think we have a responsibility to care for the environment. But as a caveat, we have to care for every resource God's provided for us. That's not just the environment. I mean, I think the scripture is pretty clear. Whatever the Lord provides for us, we have a responsibility to, to, uh, to care for it. Now, I'm going to give some, some scriptural background to the position and then, and, and then have some closing thoughts. There's a lot of it illustrated in the Old Testament, and I think it's important to start there because we've, given, we've been given the nation of Israel as an example for us. So if we watch what they do and what the Lord says to them, although it's not a one-to-one -one direct correlation, it's an important uh, learning point. And so I'm going to do that, and I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, because we get, the, we get the understanding of why the earth was created to begin with, and I think that's a good place to start. So in Genesis chapter 1, 20, verse 28, God has finished creating the world, uh, and he made it for people. Adam and Eve, and potential people who are going to be born from Adam and Eve. That's who he made it for. And he said it was good. And then he says, in verse 28, it said, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There's a couple important words there, I think, that we need to see the Lord give as he creates the world for people. And it's a lot like when, as a father or, or uh, as a... Uh, you know, the fun uncle or whatever, you give a gift to somebody. And like, for instance, in my house, it's a bow or maybe it's a, a rifle. So I give the gift and then with it comes some instructions, right? Because you don't just want to give the gift and then just let them, okay, go out and figure it out, especially if it's, you know, got a lot of potential, both for good and for harm. And so I think it's a lot like that. The Lord, the Lord has made the world and then he gives some instruction to those who are going to inhabit the world. And I think that's a good way to look at it. And, and the first word is subdue. And that is the Hebrew verb kibosh. And it is everything that we understand the word kibosh to mean. Put the kibosh on that. It is that. The, word, the Hebrew verb kibosh, 15 occurrences. It means subdue eight times, bring into subjection, uh, bring into bondage twice, keep, keep under bondage, force. It can mean to subject the earth, to, um, to make it subservient. It's used that way to, to tread down, to be subdued. And so there's an idea there that the earth has a ton of potential and a ton of uh, opportunity to go in a bunch of different directions and men are given responsibility for it. And then the other word is rule, and, and that is the Hebrew verb radal. It is, um, it's 27 times in, in the Old Testament. It's rule 13 times, have dominion over nine times, to prevail over um, to dominate, it even has the, the understanding to scrape out, to take all of, of what's good out of it, like you would a fruit or, or something like that. And, and those two words are, are pretty important. I think that you get an idea as you look at even those two words and the earth made for people, that there's some responsibility connected to it. Certainly to subdue it, to bring it under subjection, to not let it overpower you, to bring, you know, control things, things, and we, we understand this, right? We control flooding, we control all kinds of things because we understand the potential of catastrophe if we don't. So that's precisely the, ref, the inference that we, they were supposed to take away from in um, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 9. So here, you fast forward, 
and now uh, the Israelites are going to take over the land, and this is the land that's already been inhabited. And so again, some instruction are going to come along with it. And the Lord says to them, he says, a land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Now, I, there's a couple of things I think we need to take away from that. One of them is, hey, you're inheriting this really great land with a lot of wealth, and it's going to come to you, and when it comes to you, um, you're going to be full. And we're going to see later, you're going to eat and be full, your larder's going to be full, your vats are going to be full, your barns are going to be full. And when all that happens, what do you do? You give the Lord thanks, right? Because He's satisfied. You're going to eat and you're going to be satisfied. There's nothing wrong with having things. We understand 1 Timothy chapter 6, the Lord has given him richly all things to enjoy. See, it's not wrong. You wouldn't have anything and I wouldn't have anything unless the Lord had given it to us. Right? All of it belongs to him, and it, we have a stewardship, of course, connected with what he's given us, but it all belongs to him, but he's given it to us so we can enjoy it. The world was made for people, and the world was made to enjoy. And here, the people are inheriting a land, and they're going to have a lot, and that's okay. The Lord doesn't say, and shame on you for having a lot, and shame on you for having a full larder, and shame on you for having a full vat, and, and your fields are prospering, and your barn's full. Shame on you. No, the Lord says, you're going to get, when you get that, um, thank the Lord, bless him. Because you have what you have. And so you study that account of where God puts Israel in the promised land. It's a fertile land. It's flowing with milk and honey. That's just a way to say it has pretty much everything you need. God provided them that productive land, and then he commanded them to do a few things uh, to take care of it. Now, if you pick up in uh, verse 10 of chapter uh, 8 of Deuteronomy, it says, you shall sow your land for Six years and gather in its yield, but on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, so that the needy of your people may eat, and whatever they leave, the beast of the field may eat. And you are to do the same with your vineyard and with your olive grove. And so God gave that command for a number of reasons. And we see first here, so that other people who don't have that land, they can come in and they can take some. And it's okay with you, with him to do that, and it should be okay with you. He tells you, don't go and harvest it, just let it come up on its own, and whatever come up, comes up on its own, let people come in and take, and you eat off of it too, and you're going to be fine. He said, you know, I've given you plenty, you'll have plenty to carry over, you're going to be, you're going to be good, and that, the, the land will replenish itself, it's going to, things are going to fall to the ground, and they're going to, it's going to restore the ground, and the, the plants will just die on their own, and, and then when you finally disc it under again, all that's there, and the, and the land's been restored. And so every seven years, the land's supposed to have rest, and it rejuvenated itself and continued to provide in the future. Now, what's interesting about that is this. When you, when you look at uh, chapter 28, verse 15, we see something else as the cause, though, of some environmental problems. But it isn't because they... They uh, harvested their crops, and it isn't because, uh, you know, they dug, they dug uh, copper out of the hills, and it isn't uh, land where their stones are iron, and you're going to smelt it down and make tools and all that. So it hadn't anything to do with any of that. In fact, the Lord said, do that very thing. Like we just saw, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. So the idea is there's going to be some problems, but it won't be connected to doing what the Lord has said you can do on the earth. Now listen to what it says. It shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord... To observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Verse 16, cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country, and cursed shall you be your basket and your kneading bowl, 
And cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Now, I think it's interesting, and we're going to keep going with this, but I think it's interesting. You might have noticed this about two weeks ago. There was an article that came out that, that in this area where, where Moses made this speech, they found a piece of lead or tin that had been, that had been written on, cursed, and it had some of these things on there. And, and what was interesting about that for Bible scholars was, you know, a lot of people say that this, this can't have been written when it was written, and this didn't actually happen, and the Hebrews weren't in the land. But what we actually find out was, in that general area, laying there for more than 3,000 years, was this thing somebody had taken some notes on while Moses was saying it, and they dropped it, and it laid there, and some archaeologists found it just about two weeks ago. You can look it up. It's a pretty cool article. So, and it said, cursed, 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 and then it showed why they would be cursed if they didn't do some certain thing. So that's just on the side. So he says, verse 19, Cursed shall be you be when you come in, and cursed you shall be when you go out, and the Lord will send upon you curses and confusion and rebuke in all that you undertake to do until you're destroyed, until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you've forsaken me. You're going to perish in the land because you smelted copper and you dug, and you dug iron and you, and you planted your fields and you harvested them. And No. You're going to perish in the land because you didn't obey me and you didn't say thank you for what I've given you. You see? Now, it's not a one-to-one correlation. Obviously, the Hebrews are inheriting a promised land, but you can see the principles behind it. There's going to be some environmental problems, but they're not caused because you did what the Lord said to do of the earth. It's caused because you acted wickedly. And if you remember, he told them when they came into the land, he said, listen, don't do what the people who were there before you did, and don't shed innocent blood because the land will cry out to me, and I'll have to get you out of it just like I had to kick them out of it. And so the idea is sinfulness causes the problems, doesn't it? Sinfulness causes the issues that are connected with all of this. Now, verse 21 says, The Lord will make the pestilence cling to you until he's consumed you from the land where you are entering to possess it. Verse 22, The Lord will smite you with consumption and with fever and with inflammation and with fiery heat and with a sword and with blight and with mildew and they'll pursue you until you perish. And the heavens which are over your head will be bronze and the earth is under you is iron In other words, it's going to turn to desert, everything. And the Lord will make rain of your land powder and dust from heaven. It shall come down until you are destroyed. So I think you can see the the correlation. It's It's not a correlation that we make now. The correlation is, I mean, the Lord owns all of it. It all belongs to him. We have a stewardship of it, of course. But then he expects to be thanked. He expects to be obeyed. And, and, and things come on lands when people turn away. And I think we can make that case for many third world nations that we visit that have many, many hundreds and thousands of years ago turned away from the Lord and now they're la- they dig wells in the land and it's full of arsenic. I mean, you just you have this general understanding as you look at the world around you that what you do with the Lord pretty much has a lot of correlation with what happens in the nation. So when the Lord gave the Israelites the Mosaic Law, He warned them that if they apostatized, so if they backslid, he would remove them from the land and in Deuteronomy 28. And sadly, the, the children of Israel did just that and came under judgment from the northern tribes and, and, and fell to Assyria in 722 and Judah to Babylon in 605. So he also warned them that, in fact, God designated the Babylonian captivity, and this is very important, as a 70-year captivity. Do you remember when Daniel discovered that? As we study the book of Daniel, remember, he came on the understanding that it was supposed to be 70 years. That's an interesting correlation because he said that this 70-year captivity was going to be rest for the land of the Sabbath years that Israel had 
violated all of that time. They'd never let the land rest, so he just said, okay, I'll take you out of it, and I'll let it rest on its own. So the Lord did exactly what he said he was going to do. And so it appears that, that humans are charged, by Israel's example at least, to treat responsibly all the wonderful resources that God has given to us. That's, I think we can see that very clearly. But that, in fact, has very little to do with the environmental movement today. The environmental movement today is consumed with trying to preserve a planet forever. And their idea is that the planet's going to last for tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of years, and so we need to make sure we preserve all the things that are on it, except that's not what the Bible says. And in doing that, and this is so, I think this is so interesting as I was looking at your question and answering it, in doing that, in switching and turning it on its head, the earth now wasn't made for man, but man is causing the problems to the earth, then man in this, in this environment of environmentalists is the one being brought into bondage and in subjection and made subservient and dominated and scraped out. Instead of the earth being used like it's supposed to be, we flip it over and now we have an environmental uh, push that puts everybody who the earth was made for in the subjective mode, you see? They're the ones getting used and used up and put in a, in a, in a dominated position. And we can see that, can't we? That's very clear. So, this is a planet we know that God made for people. And so we're not supposed to be put in that subjective mode underneath the planet as if somehow we're the problem on the planet and once we're gone, everything will be great. The planet was made actually for us and we're supposed to care for it, but it was made for us, not be put into the subjection of the planet. And the world wasn't made to be eternal anyway. And I think that's a very important point. In, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 18, and we're going to go back now uh, from the time they were in the land, back to the flood. Noah, Noah comes out of the ark. And, and listen to what, what the Lord says to him. And his sons and his wives come out, and, and um, every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out from the ark, and it began to repopulate the earth. And we understand that. And then verse 20 says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal, of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings to, on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, verse 21, and the Lord said to himself, I'll never again curse the ground on account of man, or the intent of man's heart is evil from the, even if the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, I'll never again destroy every living thing as I've done. While the earth remains, and while the earth remains, that's interesting, he says, um, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And so the Lord makes it clear that there's going to be a time when the earth is not going to remain, but until it does, until that time comes, He's going to preserve all the things that go on in it. And we can be certain of His comments concerning that. Even if man's heart is evil and continually, He's going to preserve those kinds of things. The earth is not going to come to an end. It's not going to be 12 years and then catastrophe, you know, and all the stuff that we hear constantly, and many of those dates have already expired. You know, you know 25 years from now, the, you know, the earth will be destroyed. Well, well we, we're like 35 years now, and we're still good. Uh, so, you know. The earth we inhabit, though, is not a permanent planet. It is, frankly, a disposable planet. It's going to have a very short life. It already has a time stamp on it. We just don't know when that time is. It's been around about 6,000 years or so, and, and that's all, and it may last, you know, a few more hundred or a few thousand, or it may last a few more months. I mean, the Lord's coming could be any time, so I don't think it's going to be thousands, but then the Lord's going to destroy it, and we know that's going to happen because 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 starts that dialogue, and Peter makes that very clear, and he says, know this, first of all, 
that in the last days, mockers will come. Now, the last days began when Jesus came, so we're way, way into the last, last days. And if you don't attract mockers, you haven't put enough biblical principles on your, on your, um, on your social media, all right? And I was telling you a couple weeks ago that I attract mockers pretty often. And I attracted one this week, actually, just a few days ago. Uh, with a post that I had, and this is somebody that I, I've known a long time from another church. It's one of those guys that kind of fits the whole Hebrew profile. He just kind of did this orbit around the church, but never came to faith, and now he's, uh, he mocks pretty much everything that has to do with faith and all that, and that doesn't bother me. I gave him the gospel completely start to finish as a response to him, so that by some chance, if in the Lord's mercy, you will call him again to repentance, even understanding that uh, the places where he is right now, it, seem, it seems unlikely that that's going to be the case. But in the last days, mockers will come, and what will they say? Well, they're going to follow after their own loss. This certainly describes this, gentlemen. And then verse 4 says, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In other words, he's not coming. You guys th- you think he's going to come? He's not coming. We're going to be right here on the earth. We've got to take care of it. Nothing's going to happen. You know, this is how it's going to be. Everything how it has been is how it's going to be. And then verse 5 says, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed and being flooded with water. Don't forget, the Lord's already flooded the world once. He destroyed the whole thing. Verse 7, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. What's happening? So just like we just saw from, from uh, out of Noah's time, the Lord's going to preserve or reserve the earth until its time stamp expires. And we're not going to be able to do anything to change all of that. Kept for a day of judgment and destruction of godly men. So when he says, while the earth remains, well, now we're seeing when the earth will no longer remain. Verse 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord's not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So He waits, and the timestamp isn't executed on the earth so that those who are going to come in can come in. So He's good that way. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. In other words, coming in like a thief, it's not predictable. You don't know when it's going to happen. We understand as we look at Revelation, we look at Daniel, and we look at 1 Thessalonians 4, some things come in, pl- in, in their correct order, but eventually this, this whole destruction is going to come, and it won't be something that people say, oh, see, I told you all along it was going to happen. This is going to happen suddenly, and obviously not because men did it. Verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And so it's just a rhetorical question. One that seeks the kingdom, one that doesn't worry about what's going on here that much. You're invested here, of course, because you've got to take care of your family, but you look forward to the kingdom that's coming, and that's where your hope is. And you're not kind of you know, gathering up for yourselves all kinds of things that, that don't last. I mean, these things are not wrong in themselves, but they shouldn't own you. Verse 12, looking for the hastening and the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we're looking for new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, you know this because I've said this numerous times. I've told people who are environmentalists, virtue signalers, you know, they drive electric cars, so somehow they're more moral than everybody else. And they plug it in, and they don't know where the electric comes from. And so it's just absurd. But you can't have that conversation because they just get mad about it. But, um, you know, 
if you're upset that humanity is wrecking the planet, which you think it is, um, wait until you see what Jesus does to it. You're really going to hate that, okay? There won't be a single thing you can do about it, and I think you'll be a little more preoccupied with some other things that are going on on the planet at the same time. But uh, God is literally going to make it melt and dissolve it, if we understand First Peter well. Uh, the earth is never intended to be a permanent planet. It's not eternal. We don't have to worry about it being around for tens of thousands or millions of years from now because God's going to create a new heaven and he's going to create a new earth. And understanding those things is important to hold in balance with our freedom to use and responsibility to maintain the earth. And so, beloved, you know, and just as a footnote, even though this earth is just our temporary home, take some time to enjoy it. Go out and camp and go out and fish and go out and, and hike. You know, we said this a lot. You know, if this world that groans under the curse is still so marvelous because the Lord made it for us, um, imagine what the new heaven and new earth is going to look like. And imagine that without the curse and, and the enjoyment that you'll be able to, to have. And guess why he creates the new heaven and new earth? For the redeemed. It's just like the Lord to do that, isn't it? I mean, he created this one for man and he's going to create the new one for the redeemed. And that, that's amazing. So take some time, you know, take care of your yard, you know, and smell some flowers and plant some flowers and enjoy the forest. And, you know, God put all those rich resources on this planet for your comfort, for enjoyment. Some things he put on there just so you can, just so you can enjoy them. I mean, think about the, the number of options the Lord would have had in creating a planet. It could all be gray scale. Food might just be nutritious but not taste good, right? Flowers, I mean, why is it even there? I mean, right? It's there for beauty, isn't it? The Lord created all that so you could enjoy it. This is what you need to keep in mind. The Lord made the planet for you, okay? And that doesn't mean we just, we just do our best to wreck it and just consume it upon our lusts, but it's also not the other side either, where we're the problem, and as soon as we're gotten rid of, as soon as we stop doing anything, the planet will be better. The Lord told us to take care of it and bring it under subjection and mine it and all that kind of thing. So keep that in balance, and hopefully that answers uh, your question. And just be thankful to him, and give him, give him glory when you get to do that. Thank him for his beauty. Thank him for the majesty he displays. All right? All right. Question. We still have a few minutes, about 12. Do you have a question? Your Bible studies? Question for me personally? Question, John? <laughs> uh, yes. Not in the time that we have. Um, I, I will give you just a brief overview, but I, I will. I'd be glad to meet with you too and give you um, uh, give you a, a more thorough teaching of this a dispensation in general, and um, has to do with the Bible being broken up in. We use that word dispensations. We are in the dispensation of grace right now, and the church age, which then, as we understand the New Testament, as we read it. Um, it gives us instructions. We are separate from Israel. We are our own entity, those kinds of things. Um, covenant theology, which is the other side of that, would say that um, the covenants of the Bible um, still apply. And the covenant of, of uh, Abraham and Moses and all those kinds of things still apply. And we move into the New Testament, then we've replaced Israel and and now we're in the position where uh, all the promises to Israel are to us. And so there's some confusion there about what, um, 
what the Bible has intended with its, with its, um, with its instruction. Those, those labels, of course, are man's labels, but they give us an idea of how to break the Bible up and understand it. We teach it from a dispensational point of view and then from a Reformed point of view, which would take in an understanding of election and that God is over all salvation and does it by his own pleasure and for his own purpose. And, um, and so those things help us understand our place in, in God's timeline, what he has intended for us. I think as we get to Romans chapter 9 and 10, as we understand God's purposes in election, he moves on and he talks about Israel and he talks about they've been grafted out temporarily. Um, we start to understand that, you know, we can't replace Israel, we're not in Israel's place, and so that can't be true, and that, you know, if God promised a bunch of things to Israel in the Old Testament, and then he says, no, never mind, uh, because you've, uh, you've apostatized, I, I'm just going to give that all to the church, then we should be concerned uh, that the Lord and his promises uh, through Jesus might not stand either, he might change his mind about it. So we understand we're not, the, we're not Israel, we're the church, we have certain things the Lord wants to accomplish through the church, and then we see in Romans chapter 11 that he's going to graft Israel back in, and when the church is taken away, um, we come back to where Israel is in the spotlight again. It's been in the spotlight all the way up to the New Testament, moved out of the spotlight, grafted out, church grafted in, and, and once the rapture occurs and the, and the tribulation begins, Israel put back in the spotlight. And that summarizes a lot of the Reformed dispensational types of theology. There's a lot more to it, and a lot of, it's, it's better to do a question-answer kind of, well, what about this? Is this doctrine correct? And then you can take a look and see how that all works out with the promises of God. But I think that's, that's, a, that's a general gloss over, um, but I'd be glad to go more with you, John, one-on-one, uh, -on -one and give you a better, better view. Somebody else? Question? Yes, Nick. So, what does the Bible say about abortion? We, we, we understand that, um, we understand that the, the Lord is, is uh, pro-life. We, 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 there's no way we can come away with um, um, any, other, any other position besides life. Um, the Lord is the one who formed me in my mother's womb while I was yet unseen. He knew my unseen form. Um, to, to say somehow that the Lord doesn't speak about abortion, which is, uh, tends to be what some of... Some of the false, uh, false people around are, are saying, "Well, the Lord." Uh, that was one of the that was one of the uh, hostile things that the the mocker said. Well, wh why should we think God's against abortion when He commanded Israel to go and kill everybody in the land, including you know men, women, and children? Why should we think God loves life? Well, you know, you talk about two different subjects here. You're talking about the judgment of the Lord on a wicked nation, and um, you know, all men, unregenerate women and children, will die at Christless to go to a Christless eternity. So. That's not the same as what the Lord, the Lord's uh, understanding of, of life and how he tells us to, uh, in Psalms, to, to make sure that we um, stop those leading to the slaughter. He condemned so much the, the, sacrifice, the sacrifice of children to Molech and Chemosh and all that through the, the Old Testament. We understand God loves life and he hates when people shed innocent blood. And that, I think if, any, if anything's innocent blood, abortion is innocent blood. So the Lord hates abortion, hates it. I understand, though, and I think we do too, you know, Satan was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And so now that there's a chance that the bad law, which, I, you know, most of you attorneys know way more about this than I do, but a bad law, bad precedence, which it was said at the very beginning when Roe uh, was kind of codified that that was a bad law, bad precedent, should never been, should never stood, should have been overthrown right away. But um, 
to see the reaction in our culture uh, against that as if somehow taking away the right uh, to murder your child is some kind of fundamental right each person should have just tells you where our culture is at this point. That murder without any accountability, that it's, it's okay to just murder your child at any point, is okay with everybody. It just tells the, the depravity of, our, uh, of people. And so I don't know if that answers your question. I think the Lord is on the side of life. I think we can make an easy, easily uh, make, make that argument. And then I think to have a country that, that has the, the Supreme Court justices in place uh, is a blessing on us, that the Lord can see in the great picture whether or not states turn and, and make even more wicked laws, which no doubt that will be the case for wicked governors and, uh, and legislatures and states will make more wicked laws uh, to make it more available. There will be some states then that, that are safe havens for the unborn, which is a marvelous thing in, in my eyes and I'm sure in yours too, and, and takes away the blight of somehow this uh, right to, to murder your children is universal. Just very sad, sad time in our country, isn't it? I mean, it's just very sad. Looking at, looking at women marching in L.A., demanding the rights to kill their own children, watching people uh, in D.C. We will be ungovernable if you if you turn this over. Um, in other words, we'll do what we want and murder our own children. Just so sad to me. Um, but it just shows how depraved the country is and how lost and how much salt and light is needed by the church to speak truth in, 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 uh, in humility and kindness, knowing how to answer each one, as Colossians says, you know, um, for the hope that's in you and why it's important to protect life. It's all very, very important for the church. That's a good question, Nick. Any other questions? All right, love you guys, and I appreciate you. Let's, um, let's close in prayer, and uh, we're about out of time, about three minutes left, and um, give the Lord our, our, uh, our, our day today. Lord, we thank you tonight, uh, today for an opportunity to be together. We're very grateful for um, a chance to, to look at your word from different perspectives, to ask questions that are so important. Lord, I pray that uh, wherever I've been deficient in my answer, I pray that you'll fill in with your word and, and your people who hear love your word so much and read it so much and are very interested in growing and knowing you. We're very grateful to be able to pastor a church like this who dig in and want to know what you say and what you mean by what you say and how that applies. And Father, I pray that uh, you will bless their, their, their study and, and with understanding that they might be thoroughly equipped for every good work, that uh, we don't need to be ashamed if we rightly divide your word. And so, Lord, we don't want to avoid shame. So help us to have an, under, uh, an understanding of what you have to say. And Father, I pray that um, as we've looked at these kinds of things, help us to then have discernment concerning uh, what we see around us. Help us to have the right words to say and be quick to give uh, a word for the hope that's in us. Help us not to shy away from being salt and light. As we wait on your son's return, we want to be good, we want to be good servants who are washing the saints' feet and, and, and feeding and, and clothing and encouraging doing all those kinds of things that you would wish us to do, that you do even to wicked people. Uh, you provide so many things to those who hate you, Lord. We certainly can do and mimic uh, what you want us to do and be more like, uh, more like Christ. So for all these things, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the blessing of being in your house today, for the joy it is to be around one another. And we give you all praise in Jesus' name. Amen.